You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome to the first edition in 2020 of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where we continue our journey into the world of rules-based investing and where we do our best to give you practical advice based on our own experience so that hopefully you can avoid making some of the mistakes that we have made in our careers. Jerry Moritz, good morning, good afternoon. How are things with you today? Great, Niels. Thank you. Happy New Year and good morning, good afternoon. Yeah, things are great here in Florida. It's early in the morning, so uh, quiet. The bird is quiet. And so I'm um, looking forward to chatting it up with you guys. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you're tuning in for the first time, uh, welcome. We love that you're here and we'll do our very best to make the next hour or so as valuable as possible for you. Now, um, as a quick sort of recap, uh, 2020 obviously only been really going for a couple of days, um, but it did start off with some increased geopolitical tension following the killing of the Iranian commander. But even if the stock bulls came under pressure for a little while, the S&P was only down slightly at the end of the week. So it does seem to be very difficult to spoil the ongoing uh, bull market. But one thing I did notice, you know, whenever we start a new year, it's quite common for economists to make their views clear to the market. Um, but what is less clear when you look at their comments is finding any common ground between these. So I found these two examples. So we have Goldman Sachs coming out saying, overall, underlying great moderation appear intact. Uh, and we see the economy as structurally less recession prone today. While new risks could emerge, none of the main sources of recent recessions, oil shocks, inflationary overheating, and financial imbalances seems to be concerning for now. And as a result, the prospects for a soft landing looks better than widely thought. So that was Goldman Sachs, well-respected firm, of course. And then you have um, Bank of America's global research team that came out uh, saying that we enter this next decade with interest rates at 5,000-year lows, the largest asset bubble in history, a planet that is heating up and a deflationary profile of debt, disruption, and demographics. So, you know, pretty difficult to uh, figure out um, which way to lean when you're listening to uh, some of these market experts. But of course, it doesn't really impact the way we trade. So uh, why don't we um, talk a little bit about what stood out in the week? Anything in particular, some of the markets that you follow that I may not follow that uh, had some interesting moves before we dive into how it all impacted uh, our portfolios. I mean, what I noticed was just, you know, metals doing pretty well, energy also doing okay. And to the downside, we had uh, markets like Nat Gas uh, taking a bit of a, a hit this week. But uh, what about some of the more special markets, Moritz, that you uh, look at anything exciting? What about Bitcoin? We need to start 2020 with some Bitcoin news, don't we? Oh yeah, Bitcoin. Um, so uh, Bitcoin is one of those markets that um, I'm, I'm really, I guess I should be looking less at Bitcoin, but you know, it's so nicely volatile and it's moving so much and it's trading 24 hours and seven days a week. So you kind of, you have to have a look at the thing. And um, so I currently have no futures position uh, in Bitcoin. 
I think I've mentioned that I'm long physical Bitcoin, but this is kind of like since years and years when I first started uh, buying a couple of coins and kind of like taking a bet on the thing. Um, so I'm watching it. Um, we had a bit of a dive about a bit more than a day ago below the 7,000 mark, uh, where Bitcoin has been trading a couple of times in the last uh, month. And it kind of like looked always to move to the downside, but it recovered really quickly this time. And we're now at 7,300. And, um, you know, if if we make a, a little bit more of a, of a way to the upside, then I may be getting long again as well on the future side. So let's see it is an interesting market uh people follow it there is now a lot of talk on twitter for instance and probably at other places on the web as well about the upcoming halving of the block size and the block reward which is expected to occur between april and uh may of this year and there's uh you know all sorts of models which as a result of that halving um forecast a substantially higher price because as you know bitcoin is deflationary by design uh, there's only going to be 21 million coins ever available uh, there's not going to be any more and now the supply going forward will be less and less and less the mining reward will be less so um let's see how that pans out it's interesting yeah. I think I spoke too much about Bitcoin, but uh, <laughs> it's it's an interesting beast. All the other markets, uh, I must say this week, um, it has been still a relatively quiet week, given that we've broken into the new year, with the exception, of course, uh, yesterday. Uh, but I guess we'll get into that in a bit in a bit more detail in a few minutes. Yeah, before we jump into that, I just want to hear from you, Jerry, whether there was anything on the sort of single stock side um where you definitely differ in terms of portfolio construction that uh, caught your eye this week? Anything exciting? Uh... Well, I think, you know, uh, Tesla keeps going up. That's kind of fun to watch. Tesla reminds me a little bit of Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of strong opinions on both sides of what's real and not real. But I thought it was interesting that looking across the screen yesterday, it was not all the stocks were lower. It was a bad open 400 lower in the futures, but... Uh, kind of stabilized and I think the panic was there, but not in its extreme forms we've seen. But uh, I think the big news is still commodity longs. They're, the old longs are coming back. They're still near the highs. The new longs are approaching the wheat, the soybeans, copper, sort of a long, the precious metals have totally recovered. So 2020 long commodity trades, you know, this is uh, kind of my dream bucket. Let's. Uh, get some of these other markets moving to the upside and leave these shorts behind. So hopefully these things continue and uh, we'll have two good years in a row. Yeah, maybe be before we uh, move into uh, our usual discussion, we talk about how the week kind of panned out. I mean, is there anything you guys feel that um, we need to touch on when with respect to 2019? Obviously, when we last spoke, um, the year was not, um, you know, over just yet. But I think it's fair to say that, you know, 2019 will be remembered for a few things. Um, you know, one of the things uh, for sure, um, it was a year where pretty much every single strategy you can imagine uh, worked well. And the decade as a whole, of course, um, to many people will be remembered as a, as a decade where central banks um, put their mark on, on the markets by you know, very ample liquidity injections, uh, even right to the uh, very end of 2019. We saw massive increases in um, 
in the balance sheet uh, of the Fed. Um, so, so you know, lots of li liquidity around and and so on and so forth. And that's all well and good, but of course, it may also be a, a, a decade being remembered as the decade, the lost decade for 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 CTAs and trend followers. Certainly, some commentators will be quick to point that out. So I don't know whether over the kind of the Christmas uh, holiday uh, you've had any any thoughts uh, in, 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 in on some of these topics uh, at all or whether you have any any final uh, things you want to uh, discuss when it comes to 2019 and maybe the decade as a, as a whole. Well, there hasn't been a lost decade for me personally, that's for sure. And um, as far as CTAs are concerned, I mean, 2019, my performance... Um, is pretty much in line with the performance of the Sokchin CTA trend index. So, you know, it's kind of like right there. Um, but when we look at the dispersion of CTAs, which I find always an interesting thing to do at the end of the year, um, you know, we've seen CTAs in 2019, trend following CTAs up more than 30, 35%. And then there is a couple of ones which are down uh, more than 25-30%, right? So it's the kind of like the usual spread. And then in the middle, we have on average, you know, between 6 and six and 8% up. I guess what, what I want to say is that when we look at those indices, and if we use, for instance, the stock chain trend index to measure the performance of the industry, then as you know, those are CTAs, which are relatively large, right? It doesn't include the smaller type of trend following firms. And um, we've mentioned that before, maybe the size and too much size is a hindrance. Um, and when you looked at some of the CTAs, which are smaller, trading different markets, say alternative markets, um, I don't think they had a lost decade. I think some of them have been performing really well between 2010 and the end of 2019. Um, so it's it's a matter of perspective, I think. Um, if you just look at those, you know, the B top fifty or the the average industry indices, then um, you know you need to be aware of the fact that there's a lot of very large firms in there. Yeah, no, I agree. What about you, Jerry? What, any thoughts on nineteen, the whole decade? Anything that springs to mind? Well, definitely nineteen. I think um, pretty much nineteen is all about the bonds. If you traded a lot of bonds, you made that 30%. If it was less bonds, for whatever reason, you made less, a lot less. So I think the bonds were the gift that keeps giving, and they're, you know, they had a nice day on uh, Friday, yesterday, so they don't kind of weaker, but they're not giving in yet. It's probably still what I would consider to be okay to have some long positions in your long-term trend-following system. Um, so I think the bonds were the pretty much the news of last year and um, everything else probably was pretty much break even, but um, and that's the way it should be. We had some big moves there and depending upon your portfolio philosophy, you could have had 20 bonds on or you could have had four. Then I think it's sort of interesting to look at the stocks as well in that uh, that is a real good idea that uh, a classic example of trend following and how trend following can kind of differ from uh, buy and hold. So the buy and hold, the stocks made a lot of money because it just so happens that December 31 was near this uh, low, spike down low that we got crushed in the fourth quarter last year. And so they get to measure the buy and hold from this low point. And so, but from a trend following point of view, uh, you know, we may not have gotten back into those stocks until, you know, weeks or months later. 
Uh, let's see here. So maybe I'm looking at the chart, you know, March, April, May. So we gave back a lot of that rally as we sort of wait for that trend, those shorts to fail and the trend to upside trend to continue. So we kind of delayed our entry. And so even if you trend followed the stocks, you didn't make, uh, you didn't have that kind of move uh, that buy and hold people have in stocks or the type of move we had in the in the bonds. So it's kind of a, a, a fake fake performance in the stocks as it relates to trend following yeah no i mean i agree i think definitely 2019 was was uh, very much shaped by how you uh, how you handled the bonds uh, to to a large extent i mean from our point of view 2019 kind of ended um very close to our super long-term average pretty much the average from uh, 1974 until now uh, was is in line with how the year 2019 ended so uh, by all means that was uh, perfectly uh, fine uh, the decade as a whole uh, also pretty uh, pretty decent um, and more importantly I would say it was a decade where our correlation to the S&P was 0.03 so exactly I think what people should expect from what we do and that is a, a non-correlated return stream um, we're not a hedge we're not crisis alpha uh in in my opinion but uh, we are an uncorrelated return stream and i think uh, the last decade uh, confirmed that uh on on our side at least um so yeah let's leave 2019 for now at least until we decide to go back to it um and here more it's always interesting to hear how your week has been i know there's a couple of days from 19 and a couple of days from 2020 uh, packed into the week um, but uh, and there was a bit of excitement as I mentioned in the beginning on geopolitical side so uh, how did it all show up in your on your side yeah so uh, this week really only had if, if if you won one day which was yesterday all the other days have been super quiet in terms of returns for my portfolio there hasn't been a lot of movement um, because you know um, people were or are still kind of like in New Year's mode and there has been a public holiday the 1st of January, right? So not a lot of things happening. But so yesterday, um, it was really all about yesterday. Um, yesterday turned out to be a good day for my portfolio. Um, you know, it's it's always this double-edged sword. You look at the news and um, it's, you know, it's never great to to read and hear about those news. But you know, I still had the long bond positions on, as I've mentioned last week, and the bonds have been rallying quite strongly yesterday, so that has made me the money. And the equity longs that I have on, they've lost a bit, but not as much as the bonds gained. So that's essentially been the trade. Long the energies uh, have that position on, not fully developed, but it's long, and uh, so that helped as well. So I'm up 1.5%, um, and that's a good start into the January month. Yeah, certainly is. Certainly is. If you can do that every week, Moritz, you'll be well, well rewarded. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. I misunderstood that. Yeah. So, I mean, on our side, uh, you know, the last couple of days of 2019 actually did put a little bit of pressure on performance. I think that was clear for, for all uh, CTAs, us included. So, um, but then, as you rightly say, the last couple of days have been fine. And so, so off to... Uh, a good start in 2020 um, for the week I would say you know equities uh, clearly detracting from performance some of the currencies in particular the yen didn't do well for us and then on the upside we had generally 
most of the fixed income markets helping out. Um, but 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 the standouts uh, in terms of single markets really were things like natural gas, Brent, Lean Hawks uh, did well. So nice to see that there was uh, a good contribution from the commodity side of the uh, of the portfolio. Um, and also, as you said, I mean, kind of nice to see that there was performance to be had uh, despite equities being by far the largest exposure right now. But even in a week where it didn't really help. Uh, there were other things that uh, stepped up uh, and, and, and did what they needed to do. So, uh, yeah, so far so good. Jerry, single stocks, um, how did they impact and how was your year started or week? I like the start of the week. The stocks, uh, like I said, a lot of them were up a little bit yesterday, so it wasn't across the board shellacking. Uh, maybe if it was down 500, we'd have seen something like that. But you know, just down 200 points in the Dow is not too much. And um, a lot of good things happening in the precious metals. And the dollar, I think, had a, started to have a decent day. But um, I guess that's still in the open column for me, what's going to happen with the dollar this year. I think everybody wants to sort of get short the dollar. But it seems to also to be hanging in there uh, to start the year pretty pretty well. So, But once again, I've got different positions on short uh, Europe and Asia, but long Turkey, Israel, India, South Africa. So it's just a lot of good diversification there. Yeah, cool. A decent start uh, in the markets. Of course, we're also interested to find out how the beginning of the year, which I think started out a little bit dramatic. Maybe you want to fill us in there on, on that one, Jerry. But Twitterland, we saw some, a few tweets, but we also saw some people leaving Twitter. Yep, pretty shocked that one of the my most favorite people on Twitter, Cliff Asnes, um, closed his account. I'm hoping he's going to come back. He adds a lot. And, um, you know, people criticize me on Twitter as well. I mean, you know, just rude remarks and things. I think they're rude remarks. Uh, sometimes I don't, I can't really tell. But, uh, and I have such a thin skin, I think that um, I'm just like, golly, this is just too much. But, uh, you know, you just need a break, and hopefully he'll take a break and come back. Because he's really funny and really insightful, and people love him. And um, when you're out there, you know, you're just going to get criticized. So unless you're, you know, unless you remain anonymous and don't participate in life, you know, you're, you open yourself up for a little bit of criticism. It does sting, but I'm hoping he's going to come back. We'll miss yeah. Him. Yeah. I was just going to say, especially because he, he took the time to tune in and listen to our last discussion uh, regarding one of the papers he uh, put out and so uh, yeah i uh, i think we're we're gonna miss him uh, and his contribution and hope that he'll be back but so what else uh, did take place uh, from in terms of interesting stories content wise uh, in in your twitter feed it's pretty quiet for me but i did tweet something yesterday that probably ended up being um with you know 24 hours ago that became my most popular tweet. It's an article. It's an interview of Richard Thaler on Barron's. He says uh, the biggest mistake people make in life is overconfidence. The rise of individual investing in the '90s was caused by the illusion of information. When the market was going up 30% a year, it was very easy to convince yourself that you're a good investor. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, overconfidence. Yeah, I think that's uh, you know overconfidence in your fundamental opinions, how the world's going to work. Uh, 
what this means for you know for the future. You know, as you were saying earlier, I get kind of sick and tired of listening to all of this stuff about market is overvalued and it's going to go lower and we're sowing the seeds for a big recession or the opposite. I mean, they both, you know, it's just back and forth. And, the, and uh, one of the things that is just crazy is how one smart person will post something that says, this shows that sentiment is through the roof. And then another smart person will post, no, sentiment is really low. People are not very bullish now. I'm just like, what in the world? And in how many years and months and decades will they go calling the top in these markets and before they stop? You know, I mean, there's like no shame. Maybe it's a little bit like the CTAs. How long will we go with this underperformance before we shut up about trend following? I mean, for me, never, right? So maybe it's the same with them. They'll just never be quiet about value and fundamentals. And uh, I think one of the edges we have is that, you know, we, we don't really our confidence, we don't have uh, sort of confidence in the markets or a trade. We just put it on and it's probably going to lose. We're just going to ride the trend. So I think the overconfidence thing probably doesn't bite us as often as um, as it does others. And I really like this phrase, uh, <clears throat> the illusion of information. So we have this information. Uh, we're bombarded by information these days. There's so much information out there. And so the illusion of information, you know, what does that mean? Uh, it means that, uh, that we transfer more information into better decisions. Well, if that's what he means, you know, that's obviously not occurring. So what do you think? I enjoyed that article, I have to say. Um, I thought it was really uh, interesting. I mean, of course, it touches on something that we've talked about um, on many occasions. And I think this is one of the most important things that investors should pay, pay attention to and and that's kind of the behavioral finance or behavioral economics and and how to deal with biases in general overconfidence being one of them for sure um and i just think it's a fascinating topic and i think people are you know disadvantaged if they don't pay attention to it and try and find ways to to deal with it um i love some of his comments i can't remember sort of word for word but i think at some point the uh, he talked about a story where he was invited on one of these TV shows, CNBC, Bloomberg, whatever it was, and where he they were asking him about, so what are you going to do with your money when when everything you know gets gets uh, you know difficult and the markets are down a lot, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think he replied, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to turn off all TV channels, including your show. And then he said, well, he was never invited back. <laughs> so, so, uh, but it's. I mean, it is true, and I'll bring up another point about information later on, uh, which I think is just uh, just uh, mind blowing, really. But uh, no, I enjoyed the article in Barron's uh, that you uh, tweeted out. I think it was really, really great, and and also he talked a little bit about um, you know algorithmic trading, and uh, I think that uh, one of the things he says is something like you know what is true is that a model, if followed, is reliable and predictable. Uh, you know, in many situations, replacing uh, replacing humans with algorithms makes sense. So, uh, you know, he talks our language, of course, and so we're fans straight away. But um, I do think it's 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 super important. What about you, uh, Mort? Did you have time to uh, to see it as well? I haven't read that particular article, but I uh, I like Richard Thaler. He's a behavioral economist, and I especially like. Uh, when he and Eugene Fama are in the same room and they go in a very friendly way, head to head about who's right on uh, about how markets work. And, uh, you know, Dick Thaler, of course, says there is a behavioral element and markets, therefore, are not efficient. 
And Eugene Fama says, well, even with that behavioral element, they're still very efficient and it's kind of like this back and forth. So that's enjoyable. But what I wanted to, what, what, what crossed my mind is, you know, with all the forecasts about, you know, what the economy is going to bring in 2020 and whether that's going to be a soft landing or a recession or not a recession at all and just more growth. Uh, Niels, you've mentioned the Goldman Sachs and the Bank of America forecasts, which kind of like seem to be opposite of each other. And, and I'm like, Jerry, it's like, you know, it, this is all cheap talk to me. Now, what I'm complaining about to myself is that I'm apparently unable to switch off my small monkey brain and stop reading that stuff. You know, it's I, I should really, I mean, if there were a flag on Twitter or on the Internet saying, like, this is an article that speaks about the future development of markets and gives a forecast about the economy, then I'd love that to be kind of like flagged away and immediately deleted so I don't have to clock up my brain with that stuff. Because really, I mean, over all those years, the benefit of hindsight, you know, in December 2020, when we look back at the Goldman forecast and the Bank of America forecast, I mean... Probably neither of them is going to be correct. So it's going, it's an opinion, you know, people have opinions and they manufacture their opinions because it's clickbait and they need to have an opinion in order to sell and get marketing ad dollars. I just wish that I was smarter and, and, and had the ability to just not read it. And then at the very end, after all of this evidence, the illusion of information, uh, I read the other day, but I'm not making a prediction. Yes, you are. I mean, you know, exactly. you're, you're hitting me over the head with these predictions, and I just don't. I just don't get it. I just feel so superior just saying, okay, reality is uh, price, and maybe the illusion of price exists sometimes. Where obviously we lose on most of our trades, but I'll go with the illusion of price and where the market's going and what the market is sort of saying internally and uh, over the illusion of information. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying, Morris, makes obviously a lot of sense, but it also, um, I think, highlights the, 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 the problem really at its core, and that is we're all humans, right? So even though we we know what to do, it doesn't mean we're going to do it. Um, and, um, and for most people, of course, that's going to be the overpowering um, bias. So they're not going to do at least what we try to do, and that is when it comes to making investment decisions to completely ignore the noise and just focus on the price at least we can we can do that but we're not quite there when it comes to completely ignoring everything that goes around us and what people are saying but at least it doesn't influence um our decisions when it comes to uh, managing the portfolio so uh, so it's one step in the right direction i guess Taylor goes on to say in this article, this got a lot of attention as well. Uh, my followers love uh, things like this. Uh, no strategy can work all the time or it would be arbitraged away. So it has to be the case that styles go in and out of favor and it has to be the case that they do so unpredictably. I mean, case in point, um, let's look at the uh, CTA index, the trend index, SOCGEN trend index. I mean, it's only up 29% for the whole decade that we just came out. So by all straits of the imagination, I would say that's certainly not a, a stellar return. But then let's not forget that the decade prior to that, the uh, S&P total return was down 10% for the whole decade. So it's not like one you know, type of investment can't be as you say, um, you know, not working for a period of time, it certainly can. And there seems to be no um, clear, 
predictions that you can make from uh, one decade to another in terms of what the future performance is going to be of a of an asset or an investment strategy? You know, I was just thinking how often we get that question, you know, and we ask ourselves, when do we know things have stopped working, a system or a, or a whole strategy? And uh, I like the part where he says, it must be the case. This must be the case that style is going in out of favor, and you can't predict it because of this arbitrage that would happen if it was not the case. So I feel a little more comfort in that strong opinion of his than maybe some of the answers I've given historically. Good stuff. So um, what else caught people's attention this week, Jerry, uh, besides Richard Thaler? I like this one uh, article that I read from my friend Mark, and who's really a smart guy, and I tweet him a lot. Uh, then he had a follow-up. It was almost like he was following up to my, to my comment. But he starts by saying, investors have a negativity bias. Events with a, negative, with a negative slant will have a greater psychological effect. It's important to focus on the gradual positivism that is, that is seen in the economy and the markets. And so this word positivism kind of, I don't know, I didn't like that word so much. You know, I'm like, well, I wrote, back, I wrote in a comment that the, this negative bias, it sort of keeps us alive. I think we should have a negative bias. And I'll take positivism, but only with a stop loss. So I'll be positive, you know, but I don't want to be too positive. And I'm not even sure if I've ever heard this word positivism. And he wants me to be more positive. So I'm like, uh, okay, I guess I can be positive. But you know, I'm a risk manager and my whole portfolio is, um, is based upon safety and capital preservation and longs and shorts and massive diversification and stop losses and getting in gear with the trend. Uh, so I'm not so sure I want to be known as a highly positive person, but okay, maybe if I can have a stop loss. And then later he tweets, uh, loss aversion can harm as well as protect. Caution can be costly. It plays against the long-term positive premium of risky assets, or as we would say, the long-term positive expectation of a trend-following system. And it's, it's most costly right after bad news, bad times. Uh, consider the cost of caution in the same way you assess the cost of aggressive behavior. Now, I like this one a lot better because I, I sort of think, um, in my sort of worldview, what this is saying to me is, you know, buy those breakouts. You know, you're losing lots of money and you've had a long drawdown period and none of the breakouts are working, your recent trades, but keep buying those breakouts and understand that if you don't do that, that's way more costly than um, being, you know, too cautious. And uh, so I really like the second one a lot more. What do you think? I mean, I think that there, I think there's a lot in what you just said uh, about being positive and, 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 and all of those things. I think also it comes, so you can, we can certainly discuss it in the terms of uh, risk-taking, right? I mean, our industry has, in my opinion, seen a, uh, you know, a gradual deleveraging. People take less and less risk, uh, which is partly why the returns go down, because nobody really wants to um, stand fully behind uh, the, the, the strategy. I mean, and, and, and they seem surprised that returns go down um, as they seek less volatility in their returns. So for me, it's also about, you know, that the fact that you, I think there is a cost. I think there's a real cost of being too cautious. I, I, I get your point about, you know, having a stop loss. And, and of course, as, as trend followers, we have some 
iteration of stop loss one way or the other in a trend following strategy we certainly cut our losses short and, and let our winners run and so on and so forth but but i think there is a point about um, whether we are as an industry are getting too cautious and i know the we we discussed this uh, you know david drews and his uh, views about volatility and how uh, you know we should kind of embrace it it's not a sign of 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 risk necessarily so yeah i think that it's an important point for sure and boy, by the way, one more point. I think a lot of it has also to do um, is, is when we all started in the industry, right? I think people um, have a bias towards taking more risk if they joined the industry at a certain time. For example, people who joined in 2009 and have seen equity markets go up for 11, 12 years in a row, they probably have a different perspective than certainly that I have where... I started, um, you know, like three weeks before the, <laughs> October 1987. And so I think that that memory has stuck with me uh, in terms of being cautious by nature when it comes to investing, which is not always a good thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's many things in there. I'm not so sure about the positivism. I know, you know, optimism exists and I like being an optimist rather than a pessimist. I think long term as an optimist, you'll probably have a nicer life in the upper hand. But as far as trading is concerned, uh, like Jerry, I'd like to be very careful and cautious with my core equity um, and maybe use the word objectivism here by Ayn Rand a bit more where, you know, the trade needs to be done in an objective way, not influenced by any prediction or by your emotions or any of that sort. You risk a certain amount of money, you let the trade develop and then you look at the result. Um, and the risk really doesn't change. I mean, it's kind of like a function of the system, how much risk it takes and a function of the market's uh, price action. So that's that. But I think what, what also crossed my mind when I listened to you is um, what, what, what I find is that it's so much easier in life to find reasons to complain about things. People, I sometimes have the feeling when I observe them, they like to complain because it's so easy to find something in your life that's not working and pick it out and then blame it on somebody else and not take responsibility and be miserable about it. I think this is so much easier for any human being to do than behave in the opposite way and reflect on what's actually very positive in your life. And there are so many things, you know, but you kind of like discount them immediately. Let me give an example, right? You go on an airplane, each of us, we fly a lot, right? And then it's kind of like absolutely fascinating when you step back, you're sitting in a chair that flies through the air that has been made possible by human engineering. And it allows us to go from place A to place B in almost no time at, you know, at, at amazing speeds. But then there's people, you know, complaining about their chair not reclining enough and the food being bad and they have to wait a bit. So, it's, of course, it's easy to complain, right? Yet you, you never look at the positive sides. You have a phone in your hand that works like a supercomputer that connects you with the rest of the world. And you complain about what, whatever it is. And, and I, I'm not sure why that crossed my mind when you, Jerry, spoke about the positivism. There was something about this. And I thought about this, it's, you know, again, looking back in 20 on 2019 and maybe also the years prior, I have the feeling that this is coming up more and more that, you know, people have this tendency to become easily depressed even and, and complain about all those nitty bitty things which aren't really worth complaining about. 
just um, take responsibility for yourself. And when you look at the world you're living in, it's a fantastic place to be. It has so many positive things. Yeah, good point. So take this away for 2020, uh, all the ones who complain a lot. <laughs> we'll remind you about this being positive, Moritz, if we have another one of those uh, bond sellers we had in September. I'll definitely complain about the bonds. It's not my fault that the bonds are selling off. It's your fault. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's a valid point. And actually, I mean, we live in a world where we're so afraid of, uh, you know, other people's judgment, right? I mean, just look at just look at social media, uh, you know, how people try and, and, and portray a certain life uh, not to be disappointed by with fewer likes. And actually on that point, I mean, it's quite interesting. I think one of the platforms, I'm not sure, but maybe it's Instagram. I'm not, a, not an expert. But I think they're experimenting with taking away the whole uh, issue of likes uh, so that you don't so people don't get these highs and lows from seeing how many likes uh, we got i mean even when we talk about the, your tweets uh, jerry we kind of notice whether it has a lot of love and or or little love from from the uh, from the outside world so we're all very um uh yeah we we all pay too much attention on on other people's opinion so to speak through through these things so oh definitely and i read something or different things irritate me uh one is just over congratulations you know there's just a I, i've come across these groups that are always congratulating each other on something you know some sort of piece of research or some sort of idea or some sort of tweet and it's like a million likes and i'm always looking for the unlike button and i'm like where is that button that i can express my dislike for something so i much prefer that than to have a like button same here. And, and one of the, while we're at the thing, one of the words that I really came to, um, you know, I, on, on Twitter, there are so many people that have like, that there's a random good thing happening to them and it's really not that special. And then they say, I'm blessed. And like, what? Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's, like, it's like the ultimate self-congratulatory thing. I'm blessed because, well, I don't know. I, uh, my my soccer team won or something like that. It's it's ridiculous. Everybody seems to be blessed these days. Absolutely, we'll be all be very careful about using that word going forward, <laughs> Moritz. Yes. Well, you should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Good stuff. All right. Um, what else happened on Twitter? I think this is a this is a fun conversation today. All sorts that is not in our usual script. There are a few articles around, I would just say, I know I read one recently, I didn't tweet it, but Morgan Housel, and I've seen other articles recently at the end of the year, you know, that, uh, you know, I don't really take these that seriously because I think people, like, I don't know if they really believe this or if their heart's really in it, or it's just, hey, uh, everyone's written the opposite of this, so I'm gonna really write this just because it's the opposite. So, but one of the things I've read was that people do are, are sort of creating lists and acknowledging that we live in pretty darn good times and trying to take uh, uh, notice of the fact of all the things that have gotten a lot better in, you know, in life in general. So that's kind of nice to see. I think they're probably sincere about it, but it's hard to say because uh, if you read a lot of negative stuff, then you know, write something on the opposite of that and I guess you'll get a lot of people reading it, but uh, the world is a pretty good place these days as far as um, improving over time we're getting a little bit better and nicer i guess in some some regards not, maybe not nicer i shouldn't have thrown that in not in the u.s anyways we're not that nice these days 
Good stuff. Well, yeah, I know we kind of challenged each other of, of picking kind of one topic a week maybe going forward that we want to talk about. And, and who knows if we can we can do that. Um, but maybe one of us or two of us or all three sometimes will have something. And, and for me this week, there's one thing that uh, we already touched a little bit on. It's uh, to do with the amount of information we're getting. And I stumbled across... Um, some information about a guy called Buckminster Fuller, which I had never heard about, um, who lived from 1895 to 1983. And um, his career didn't start so, uh, you know, uh, positively because he got thrown out of university uh, for being too social and uh, for missing some midterm exams. But actually, it uh, it ended pretty well because in 1983, I think just before he died, he was awarded the uh, Medal of Freedom, uh, which I think is the U.S. highest civil honor that you can get. So clearly a man who um, contributed something uh, of much value um, during his life. And one of the things that he uh, worked uh, on uh, was, uh, and where he made some, um, I wouldn't would use the word prediction, but he made some statements about the amount of information we as a total human race, uh, how long time it takes for all of us to kind of double the total knowledge we have uh, in, in, in among humans. And uh, he estimated originally that in 1900, the year 1900, so 120 years ago, it would take 250 years for that amount of knowledge to double. But then later on, he realized that actually... Um, by the nine, by 1900, we were down to just a hundred years, a century, um, before the whole total knowledge in, in among humans had doubled. By 1945, he said that it was now doubling at every 25 years, and by 1982, it was doubling every 12 to 13 months. And then IBM got involved, and they made a an estimate. Uh, that by 2020, which is now, human knowledge will be doubling every 12 hours. And to me, that's just a staggering fact. But I also think it has huge consequences, not least uh, in terms of, you know, investing and investors in general. Because, I mean, we, you know, and, and let's move away from what we do, but people in general, a lot of people who make investment decisions are basing it at some level of knowledge that they feel they have. They study a set of accounts, they study macroeconomic data, whatever it might be. And then they feel that they know uh, enough uh, to make a decision. But if information among humans are being now doubled every 12 hours, to me that just means that whatever worked 40, 50 years ago in terms of doing this kind of analysis and feeling that you now know what you uh, need to know, I just think it's completely impossible nowadays with the amount of information that is being available uh, to humans. So so it reminded me actually of this old saying uh, that I think uh, Larry Hyde coined, knowing what you don't know. I mean, to me, that philosophy um, is probably more relevant today than it's ever been. Um, and getting away and not relying on prediction and educated guesses about earnings and future monetary policy, um, which, of course, we saw in the last decade, can be very different to anything we could ever imagine. Um, so embracing these rules-based strategies um, to overcome our fragile uh, biases and 
blending them with traditional portfolios um, where all the evidence, and, and I'll definitely repeat that, I mean, all the evidence suggests that you can achieve higher returns and, and lower risk if you blend these things together. So I think it's, you know, incredibly interesting uh, that we are now at a time where we are literally being bombarded or or humans as such are acquiring so much knowledge at a, at a huge pace and um, that this will, I think it, it will have an effect on success of 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 maybe old style type investment strategies um, and maybe that's why frankly that quant based strategies have seemed to taken over in terms of being the most reliable and and, and best performing strategies uh, when you look at the league tables at least of of hedge funds did you know about this uh, um, I I didn't know about that I'm um, I'm amazed that knowledge can double every 12 hours it i'm not sure how that can be possible maybe maybe what he means is the amount of information available data that's stored and data that's made available through smartphones and because you're tracked on your speak you know data no I, I think sure. it, it means that i think it means if you look at all humans you know in total yeah so all humans are, are we're all as, uh, amazing more information, but of course a lot of people who had very little information 10 years ago or 20 years or 50 yeah. years ago who oh. probably didn't learn anything new in a whole week, now they're learning new things because of, you know, as you say, because of some of the technology so we have, of course. becoming more intelligent as a group. Uh, I don't know about intelligent, but we, are, we have more knowledge. I mean, intelligence suggests to me that we're making better decisions, so I'm not sure that's the case, but we have more knowledge. We know more. That's, I think, what the study or what IBM is saying. And every that, that, 12 hours, we know twice as much as we used to know 12 hours before. That's what they say as a combined well, human I mean, race, yeah. I, I find that almost impossible to believe, but <laughs> um, let, let's let's just... Let's just say it's true. I, I give you the benefit of the doubt. Like I said, I uh, haven't read anything about this. Um, I guess what, what I'd say is that um, I can only speak for myself, but there is so much information available that, you know, you only have 24 hours in a day. It's impossible to consume it all. You know, in, in years prior, say 20, 25 years ago, when the internet was only just starting, you weren't bombarded as much with information or a real-time Twitter feed or any of that or breaking news and this and that all the time, right? Everything's available for you to click on and read or have a video streamed or look on TV. Um, so there's so much you're bombarded with that stuff that it's overwhelming. And I think, just speaking for me, it's probably a good idea to step back a little from that massive flow of information and um, and not try to immerse yourself too much into it because it, it can really take you over and, uh, and and then you don't have really any time left to do meaningful things or more and more meaningful things. So that that's something that I've observed. It's a fact. The information is available more and more at a faster pace and to me it is it is too much i'd like to have a filter where um really only once a day or twice a day i can see the most important things and then not no longer read all the other stuff yeah when i hear things like that i immediately say not true move on you've lost me i'll never believe it but you know sometimes it can be true and so i miss out but uh, yeah that's the sort of thing that i'm like no sorry i'm not gonna 
I can't believe that. I'm not going to even finish reading this, but um, I think it's interesting that um, you know the trend follow, even if it's not true, and, and we don't, uh, we still have the same amount of information. Uh, you know, we're still going to follow prices only, right? And so, if in fact information, as as we know, it's, it is getting more and more. And we're, I don't know if it's helpful either, but you know, then that further makes us committed to only looking at prices. The world is too complex. There's too much information. And so the trend followers are saying, okay, it'll all be filtered into price somehow, and I'll just, I'll just be double my commitment to just looking at prices. And yet now the big rage is um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, and they're like, oh, give me more. Yeah, I want more data. And this will help me with my algos, uh, massively complex algos that are, will soon be written by algos. The new algos will be written by the old algos this is going to help me make better decisions. And so I think it's really interesting that the two different worldviews here is uh, one's being embraced by, you know, by the, the new side. And we're sort of sticking to our guns with uh, more of a reason than ever to just follow price. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you have any other topics you want to bring up this week before we jump into uh, some questions we have. Let's do the questions. All right. So first question of the year 2020 is, uh, from our good friend Sam. Um, Sam talks, I think the the, the, the topic of the uh, email, I'm not going to read all of it, is about diversification. Uh, Sam goes on to say, a lot of the global diversified content think Mip Faber and his guests will talk about a portfolio of US international equities and bonds, including developed and emerging gold, real estate, tips and commodities. A fine start, better than the majority and something I agree with. When trend following is discussed, and then, and then looking at markets like Don Trades, for example, it seems much of the equity and bond exposure is in developed markets. Do you think there is an opportunity to further diversify portfolios into additional asset classes such as emerging? Is the portfolio comp composition a function of available liquid, liquid futures markets? Does it really not offer further diversification to expand, etc.? The only emerging market type exposure usually discussed is within the currencies and these regions slash countries. So portfolio construction, um, further diversification opportunities by going outside maybe the developed markets. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, to, uh, to Sam's question? Well, I'm happy to start with that if you don't mind. I uh, think we've we've said many times that we're all big, big fans of um, maximizing our diversification. And if there are new markets available for us to trade, then we definitely want to give them a very close look. Um, now, as far as the equities are concerned, I think there 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 are markets available uh, for a trend following system to become uh, really diversified and trade markets all around the world even some of the emerging markets. For instance, there's an emerging markets, MSCI emerging markets feature that trades in a very liquid way, uh, which could be used, but also you can, you know, trade the Nifty, you can trade Singapore, you can trade South Africa, um, you can trade the cash equities there if, if you have the right broker. So as far as the equities are concerned, um, the world is your oyster and, and you can really go and access those markets. The bonds, that's a different thing, right? First off, I mean, I'm not trading any corporate bonds, right? So what I'm trading is is government bonds. Corporate bonds is, again, you know, one could actually think about adding corporate bonds to a trend-following portfolio. It's just for us, there are no futures markets linked to those type of instruments. So you would have to trade the cash uh, 
markets. That's an OTC marketplace. There is no exchange where you can find a bid and offer and just easily click you in and out of a position. But going back to the government bonds, it is really more limited what is available. The developed markets, they have government bond markets. Uh, but then, you know, I'd, I'd love to trade um, South African bonds or Thailand bonds or Vietnam bonds, but they don't have any. There's nothing issued. Or maybe if it is issued and they have um, a treasury that, you know, funds itself through the issuance of bonds, uh, there's no futures market available that I can trade. And, and I'm unable to access any of the cash bonds. So those markets aren't that that easily available. And therefore, in, in the bonds, it is more limited to really, uh, or it's more difficult, not limited, it's more, more difficult to really maximize your diversification as much. Because the developed bond markets, they're also positively correlated. Like yesterday is a good example, right? It's been a risk of day. U.S. bonds up, Canadian bonds up, Australian bonds up, German bonds up, all the bonds are up. There's probably not a single bond market that has been going down yesterday. So there we are. Yeah. What about uh, you, Jerry? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I understand all of that, but I think that our bent needs to be towards, yes, I'm going to trade it. If there's liquidity, whether it's a futures or not, um, I trade a corporate bond ETF. So there you have it. I will venture over into sort of an index-like approach, let's say, by using this uh, corporate bond ETF, an emerging market bonds ETF. You know, you can trade those uh, so it's not a pure play on each individual country or company. But um, yeah, I think they look a little bit different. And they uh, were, you know, I think one of those was down yesterday. So there's a little bit of diversification to be gotten. But I think our mistake that CTAs have made for many, many years, myself included, is not venturing out beyond futures and trying your best to find uh, markets that are different and not the same markets uh, that everyone else is trading, uh, whether it's single equities or bonds or, you know, just always be on the lookout for ways to add to your portfolio. But, you know, liquidity is the issue. So uh, have, you know, if you can say to yourself, I trade everything I'm able to, I've done everything I possibly can to trade every liquid market. Yeah, that's the attitude I think you want to have for yourself and your clients. Yeah. And Sam, I don't think I can add much to this. Uh, all I will say uh, is that uh, we we trade probably a lot less markets than both Jerry and Moritz do. Um, and... Um, you know, for, 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 for various reasons. I think definitely, as Jerry says, liquidity is super important and, and we wouldn't venture into anything that's not liquid. The other thing I will say is that I do think there is a, a limit to, I mean, and we know that the marginal benefit of diversification, once you get to, you know, 60, 70, 80 markets, I mean, of course, it does drop down if you want to stay with within the future space. But as Jerry says, I mean, there are other ways you can expand your uh, universe of markets and uh, and, and, you know, so... But it's a it's a good point, and but I and I also do think that some of the larger CTAs for sure are, have ventured into some of these more alternative markets, including uh, emerging markets, and they've had great success with it, uh, without a doubt. So uh, so there's probably been some trends to be had uh, more consistently by going out uh, to less liquid markets. Uh, so yeah, the next question is uh, we're going to stay in the U.S. We're going to move on to Houston. We're going to move on to Edmond. 
So Edmund says in his email, I love the podcast, guys. It brings me back to where I started with trading, had initial success, kind of wandered off from, and where I want to get back to. Along the lines, do you have any thoughts on good backtesting platforms that will handle portfolios with multiple trend-following strategies and allows for customization of position sizing? I'm an individual trader. Don't code, at least not yet. And the platforms I've been looking at seem mostly geared towards optimization of signals and fancy indicators with a few canned position sizing options throw in. I'm more interested in a program that provides very detailed stats on backtesting uh, can let me explore uh, the envelope on position sizing regimes. Anything off the shelves come to mind or am I looking for something that requires custom coding? Um, let me throw it out to you again, Moritz, um, if there's anything that springs to mind on your side. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I'm unable to give any good recommendations. I'm not using any of those platforms. I'm sure there are some available, but uh, I'm, I'm the wrong person to really give recommendations there. What I've always used and still use to the present day for prototyping is Excel. I think it's fantastic. It's uh, become more and more powerful uh, over the years. And um, and then, you know, custom coding. And that can be in Python or in C Sharp or whatever the language of your preference is um, to set your system up. That's that's the way it works for me. Yeah, I love Excel. TradeStation probably is still something that uh, might work. Yeah, so... Uh, but uh, probably uh, what I, you know, I recommend uh, Excel and play around with Excel. If you're not a programmer, then come up with your ideas by looking at charts in Excel and, and uh, hire a professional programmer who can do the back test. And, uh, you know, I like to think I'm being more creative and problem solving and I'll leave the coding to an expert. Yeah. And, and maybe uh, I'll give a shout out to uh, one of the people who attended our uh, live event in New York last year, Seth, uh, who um, does some videos on YouTube with uh, with Sam, uh, I believe. And maybe that's a topic for you and Seth and, and Sam to do uh, a video about backtesting platforms. I know you, you'd, uh, you used blocks. Uh, I'm not endorsing it. I don't know it. But but you seem to be happy with it. And as you said, it was easy to use. So maybe Edmund, that's something uh, for you to uh, have a look at. Next question we have is from Drew. He drew starts, howdy guys. I believe each of you would agree that your models have been adjusted somewhat over time, such as longer lookbacks, etc. What evidence did you see that made you realize something needed to change? What deviation to past performance was most influential what made you believe the system wasn't having an outlier type performance versus a new norm requiring change going forward what are you watching for to know if you need to make adjustments to your model or are you even concerned with that if you made adjustments once there's a risk you'll need to do it again interesting question drew what about you moritz what um what have caused you to make changes uh, from time to time? Yeah, that is a very good question. And there is not a single answer, but, um, you know, it is performance and risk adjusted returns and drawdowns and the statistics of, of my risk and all of that, um, which which probably made me go, go longer term. I mean, the 
basic and well-known shorter-term breakout models, which I started uh, backtesting and, and using, they they uh, they stop working as well. You know, I'm I'm not saying that they are completely defunct. They just don't work as well as they used to. And then if you compare that profile to the longer term, first the medium, then the longer term trend following models, you didn't see that same level of degradation in returns. So there was more stability there. And I guess this is this is why I've, you know, swayed over. I mean, I think uh, looking at charts and living through trades where I was just continuing to get out of the trade and watch it go back to new highs and make continue making money sort of got me thinking maybe my trailing stops are a little too close to the market so then when you do the back test you uh, get that confirmed or not confirmed but i would say that uh, just to pick on one more point that he made was that uh, it's whether you make these changes or don't make changes you're still gonna be uh, you know having an idea in your head that you, maybe i should make some changes so making changes doesn't uh, mean you're going to have to make more changes. You may make more changes uh, having never made a change before. So, uh, you know, I don't think that this is uh, this fragile, the system is this fragile being that exists. And if you touch it and you change it, now you have a lifetime of changes ahead of you. I mean, I don't approach it in that way. Um, I think, the, and once again, as I said many times, the great thing about changing and, and uh, the way that I've done it is that uh, when I've made changes, the changes that I uh, have made have worked over the entire data set. It's not like I said, you know, I think I'm having an issue here. Let me test it over the past 30 or 40 years. Oh, it works great over the last five or 10 years. No, it worked better over the entire test period. I should have always been trading longer term, even in 1984, uh, trading longer term like I do now, I think worked better than um, what I was doing then. So I think that's another key is you don't want to just, uh, unless you have to, you know, you prefer to make these changes and have the data, confer all of the data confirm uh, your change. Yeah, no, I think all of those are very uh, important points, uh, Drew, to take away. I mean, on our side, um, you're so over 45 years of trading, we've made maybe uh, three to four um, bigger changes, and I would say two of them bigger than than the others. So it's not like you have to make changes all the time. You you'll make small adjustments along the way, without a doubt, adding markets, removing markets, things like that, and 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 so on and so forth. One of the things that we changed, uh, oh, that's uh, fourteen years ago, was the idea of having automatic selection of parameters. Right. So that's something that you know once you've made that change it's probably quite unlikely we're gonna you know go go back from that so i think when you when you decide to make a change you've done all your research you're convinced that this is a better way of doing it like jerry says i mean it has to be better throughout not just to fix a short-term problem then um yeah then i mean it's 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 obviously every time you make a change there's a chance that, that you're going to get it wrong but but i think we do our best to to make informed decisions, but try not to make too many uh, radical changes. Also, uh, keep in mind that our clients, they do want us to evolve as managers, but they don't want us to change uh, our profile. So that's a balance we have to, uh, to take into account uh, as well. But of course, trying to make things better, I think should always be 
you know, small incremental improvements, I think, should always be something you strive for, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think especially if you can, uh, apart from the research and the back test, you know, think about how you do things and say, oh, my gracious, I think I'm doing something wrong here. And that's, I think, uh, a very big positive. Um, I know that over the years, especially after 2008, it was almost like every little flaw we had uh, had never hurt our performance before. We'd never really seen it except when 2008 rolled around. Well, maybe not eight, but maybe 07 or 09. There was a stressful period around there where it's just like everything we kind of did wrong. And I remember thinking these were not things we necessarily uncovered by research. It was just like we were thinking about them and we're like, oh yeah, we shouldn't do that. And um, it didn't even show up in all of the data until all at once, you know, every kind of little minor problem we had. And I think uh, approaching it from rather than data mining, uh, I think uh, looking at how you do things and say, you know, is that kind of the way you should do it? Um, as it relates, especially to, uh, I guess, mostly talking about money management and sizing and things like that. I think we just sort of said, yeah, I don't think we should be doing things that way. And uh, and I think coming up with those ideas in that way is probably more solid than um, sort of data mining, I guess. And also, I guess, technology in itself, just the, the advancement of technology has allowed us to do things in, in that we couldn't do 10 or 15, 20 years ago, uh, essentially. Um, I know that for a fact. I mean, for us, uh, doing what we do in terms of uh, automatic selection of parameters, I mean, that requires quite a lot of computer power. And we couldn't do that 20 years ago, but we could do it 14 years ago. So that's when we made the change. So. Good stuff. Um, great question, Drew. Thanks so much. Uh, and by the way, if any of you want to uh, hit us up with a question, uh, we would love to uh, to hear from you. If you email info at toptradersunplugged.com, then we'll do our best to bring up your question on the uh, next recording we do. Right. So the last question is from Sebastian. Uh, Sebastian writes, I wish you happy new year. Thanks very much, Sebastian. I recently asked myself the question, why is it so hard to be a successful trend follower? Because if you look at non-finance fields, it seems to me that people are great trend followers. For example, in the fashion business, so many people jump on a new trend and ride it until it's over and the next trend starts. They don't see the invested money, for example, in clothes as a loss because to be in that trend gives them a good feeling. Why most people can't ride these trends? Why can't, can't most uh, people ride these trends in financial markets? And then he goes off by saying, maybe a bit of an unusual question, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. And uh, I think it's a great question, Sebastian. It's uh, good to venture out outside our our sort of typical uh, narrow bounds. And I think that uh, just to jump in on this, I mean, I think, Sebastian, you're, you're right that in many ways, people, humans, we are trend followers deep down. I mean, we... We follow uh, trends in fashion. We follow trends in social media. I mean, we are we have some wiring for for that for sure, but we also have some wiring inside us that makes us poor investors. Um, you know, we want to take action all the time. We hate being patient and uh, and things like that. And then it goes against some of the key points uh, within trend following. So I think there are some there are some forces that collide inside us when it comes to being a disciplined, long-term 
diversified trend follower when it comes to your investments and then how we are as, as humans. But when it comes to kind of following other uh, other trends as, as in clothes or fashion, you're absolutely right. Most people do that uh, with ease. Uh, so what, uh, what do you think, Jerry and Moritz, about uh, this point? Well, as I've said before, I mean, I just think as a human, I have this initial reaction almost all the time of no, that's not going to work. And I think you need to have the opposite reaction and say, you know, it's mentally or actually my trading. Okay, whatever, it's a new high, I'll buy it. And I have a stop loss. And that needs to be your attitude in life, you know, that, um, yeah, it could work, it could become an outlier, you know, uh, the internet might work app, the iPhone might work, you know, uh, Netflix, yeah, I can see how it could work. And so just be the type of person that um, put yourself in a situation where you're going to react more positively towards um, crazy ideas, you know, most of them won't work. And so you have your small loss or, but I just felt like historically, I've been so negative about something new is that my attitude is, oh yeah, you know, it's sort of insulting. I didn't come up with it. It's sort of insulting my intelligence, probably not going to work. I think it's much better to uh, think about things in a positive way. What about you? Are you a secretly trending, a, a fashion trend follower as well? <laughs> oh, I'm, uh, I'm not so sure about that. You need to tell me. You look, you look at me and the way I dress. But uh, we'll ask your wife about that more. It's really you can do that too. Um, uh, and she'd probably say that I need to buy some new clothes. But anyway, I think you know if you walked around today in 1930s fashion or like the the 1970s, 60s, 70s flower power type of dresses, then people would be looking at you in an awkward way. So being like. Going with the fashion is probably good for you because people don't look at you in an awkward way and maybe they congratulate you on the latest uh, sweater that you've purchased because it looks nice. So it's it's that's that's kind of like an easy thing that you want to do. In the financial markets with our trends, um, look, I mean, this is more difficult because most of them cost money. Uh, you know, you're kind of like being told more often than not that what you're doing there is... Uh, it's a bad trade, you're losing money and you have to wait for those large winners. And that can be a long wait and uh, it can be very difficult to sit through it. So it's it's more difficult to do it in the markets than than in the fashion industry. All, all I can say, Mort, is that um, having two teenage kids um, following the latest fashion in clothes is also something that costs real money, uh, not just, uh, yeah. not just <laughs> <I'm> trading. <sure. laughs> but what I will also add to that, again, another little something I picked up and I have no way of verifying this but apparently the fashion industry a couple of years ago started you know putting out um, things like more yellow type clothes and more camouflage type clothes more combative clothes etc etc and the the person uh, talking about this um, made the connection saying that it's quite interesting that often the fashion world is ahead of time to what happens in the real world. And of course, um, she was tying this into the yellow vest movement in Paris, where now we see all this coming out in the streets of Paris. But actually, if you looked in the fashion houses a couple of years ago, it was already starting. They're already starting to put out things that 
you know, was a little bit, uh, if not a lot, in the direction of what you see now in the streets of Paris, but with a completely different meaning. So, so maybe there is a bit of more of a link between these things, uh, Sebastian. And maybe your question is not so unusual as you as you put it. It's interesting for sure. I think to a large degree. I've read uh, articles over the years that uh, movies and fashion and people in business, they have a very similar um, uh, process and experience that tr trend traders have. They they take these flyers, um, in, on, especially in movies, and they have no idea if it's going to work or not. They're just as surprised as anyone else that this particular movie was a huge smash, and they make all their money by a few of these outliers, and they can't predict which ones are going to be outliers. And... And I guess that's what I'm kind of saying is that, you know, take a flyer, just take a small one, build a diverse portfolio in all areas of your life. Um, something looks crazy. You can't even identify with it because it's, you know, teenagers or younger people who really will probably push it or not push it. And then all of a sudden it explodes into something amazing. And, you know, you look like a genius. And I think this formula of life that we sort of have with our trading is, a, is around in all aspects of life. Yeah. Yes. There we are. Let me jump in. Thanks for all the questions, by the way, uh, to Sam, Edmund, Drew, and Sebastian. Um, let me just quickly round off 2019 because, of course, when you last uh, heard from us, um, the year hadn't finished. But let me just run through how the year did finish, in fact, for the various indices that we track. The Beta 50 index ended December down 32 basis points, but ended up 6.73% for the year. The Sokjian CTA index was down 53 basis points into, in December and up 6.36% for 2019. Sokjian trend index down half a percent in December, up 928 for the year. And the Sokjian short-term traders index was down 7 basis points in December and up 3.33 for the year. And finally, the Bridge Alternatives index got hit in December, down 2.11% and up 7.29% for the year. So not a bad year. And since we only have one or two trading days uh, and actually only one that I can track uh, for this week, I'm not going to spend time running through you know, what the indices have done uh, on Thursday, except to say that they were all up uh, a little bit. So um, there we are. What else should we um, talk about, uh, if anything, before we... Uh, wrap up this week's uh, conversation anything that springs to mind any topics anything you are excited about other than the three of us actually meeting up physically in a couple of weeks uh, in Miami that's exciting at least to me watching some base basketball I'm, I'm told that's exciting as well so January looks looks already very very good uh, special guest next week Maybe. Oh, yes, of course, we have a special guest, Andreas Klino, uh, a very popular guest, I think, among our audience, uh, the author of Following the Trend, uh, his first book, which we'll try and uh, and dig a little bit deeper in. I think, uh, in particular, you, Jerry, have uh, lined up a number of topics you want to uh, discuss, and, and we'll certainly think of a, a few as well. So that's exciting. If you do have questions for Andreas Klino, I think uh, some of you might then send them to info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to uh, to get as much time as possible with Andreas so that we can go through as many of your questions, if not all of them. Anything else, gentlemen? 
No, uh, it's been fun. Looking forward to uh, meeting you again at the end of the month and uh, hanging out, catching up, and looking forward to speaking with Andreas next Sunday. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. Well, that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, of course, we would be delighted if you would help others discover the show by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. And please share this episode with a like-minded friend. Uh, One share is all that we ask for. From Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much again for spending part of your day with us. We're grateful for your support and we can't wait to be back with you in a week's time. In the meantime, have a wonderful day week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.